And I have a reading from God's word. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead. And uh, this week, um, if, if you were with us last week, Steve talked about um, he is starting a sabbatical. He's going on a sabbatical this summer. And so this week is the official beginning of his sabbatical. And so um, we are going to be moving into the summer and um, having some different speakers in, um, some guests. Brian Pacheco, who um, is often leading worship for us. He'll be preaching some. I'll be preaching some. And... Uh, Starting next week, specifically, we're going to kick off our summer series. We're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is a sermon that Jesus preached. It's in the book of Matthew, and we're going to be going through that over the course of this summer. Um, we, it's the, we're calling the series the Sermon on the Mount because we couldn't come up with anything more creative than that. I really wanted to call it something different because nobody uses the word mount at all, right? Like, you have never been driving and seen a mountain and said, look at that mount, Right? So, but at the same time, everybody knows it is the Sermon on the Mount, so we just said, let's keep it simple. So we'll start that next week. We're looking forward to that. In two weeks, on June 6th, we are very excited because Trailhead Kids will be opening back up, and that's going to cut the number of people in this room by about half, I think. Um, but Trailhead Kids is coming back June 6th. You will need to register online. Um, and it will only be during the 9 a.m. service, but we are really looking forward to it, really excited about that. Um, Andrea Wong is leading up Trailhead Kids. She sent out an email earlier this week um, with some details about that, but we will continue to communicate more details as we get closer to that time, um, so we are looking forward to that. This week, though, um, we're not quite to our summer series but we're kind of in a holding pattern with Romans, and so this is kind of an in-between. And so I want to take this week and look specifically at this passage together in Ephesians. Um, and specifically, I want to look at this passage because of cows. Um, so I don't know if you noticed as we were reading through the connection between Ephesians chapter 2 and cows, but I want to kind of lay it out for you to get started, okay? So um, I grew up, I was born and grew up outside of Detroit. I grew up in the suburbs um, when, when I say grew up, let me, let me back that up. We lived outside of Detroit in a Dearborn Heights um, area of Detroit until I was about seven years old. So I was, I was very young. Um, and whenever I try to tell people I, I 
came from the Detroit area and they start talking about, oh, do you know this and this? It's like, uh, no, I don't actually because we were seven when I moved. When I was seven years old, we moved out of suburban Detroit area to rural Indiana. And so for me as a kid, there was this huge shift and I was fascinated, fascinated by everything rural. Like when we, the first time that my family drove from Detroit to a little town called Wabash, Indiana, when we, the first time we drove from Detroit to Wabash, it was like the world was changing. It was fascinating because everything I knew was, was highways and buildings and maybe parks, you know, and the animals I had seen were squirrels and zoos. And that was it, right? And we're driving then, we're driving from Michigan, we're driving to Indiana, and it's like the buildings disappear. And there's all these fields. And I'm like, this is amazing. Look at these things. It's like you can look out and you can just look and not see a building. Like at all. You just look and it's just all. And I didn't know. at the t- Years later, I found out you could look and know what was growing in those fields. At the time, I did. It was just stuff. There's stuff growing. Right? And it was like corn and beans. and, um, But not corn that you can eat and not beans that you can which again right but but and we just look and and then but then the thing that was like really to me as a kid as a seven-year-old the most like wow was when we started passing by cows and i was like oh my gosh real live cows this is incredible mom dad look there's cows and like every and we drove back and forth a couple of times you know because when you're moving and it's you're trying to like settle housing and stuff like that so but every time we would go every time we'd make that trip it was like cows look cows 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 and then once we moved to indiana and we'd be driving around and just and it's this little small farming community, so we'd see them quite a bit. But every time, cows, there's cows, oh my gosh, I can't believe it, like I'm seeing real cows. To me, little seven-year-old city kid in rural Indiana, these cows were fascinating. They were amazing. They were so exciting. It was like, it was like, hey, can we go for a drive somewhere just so I can see if we pass by some livestock? Right? Because it was like that exciting to me. Now, you can probably guess, over time, that fascination started to fade. Because we lived there from the time I was seven until the time I was uh, 30-something. I don't even remember. We lived there for a long time. I did not get that excited about cows for 25 years. I got used to them. In fact, I got to the point where driving by... You don't even notice the cornfields anymore. You're just driving to wherever you're going. And the only thing you start to notice about cows is if you have your windows down, there's something kind of unpleasant about cows that wasn't as much of a concern when I was younger, but as you get older, you're a little like, ah, you know. And um, So the fascination and the excitement, the newness of it all, gradually started to fade over time. Because I just got so used to it. Something that had stood out because it was so new and so different just became a part of normal everyday life. Now, you may not um, have that experience with, with large animals. I, I don't know. But there's probably something that you can make that connection with. Something that at one point was super exciting to you. But the more you see it, the more you get used to it, the more it just becomes a normal part of your life. The excitement just kind of fades. It just becomes normal. I think this is just natural, right? 
Like anything that's amazing at first, the more comfortable you become with it, the more you just kind of get to a place where it's like, okay, that's just kind of what it is. I mean, you could, you could hang a Rembrandt in your living room. Eventually, at some point, you're just going to sit on the couch and you're not even looking at it, right? Because the more comfortable we become with something, the less we notice it, the less exciting it becomes. Here's what I think all this has to do with Ephesians chapter 2. When things that used to excite us start to become routine, when things that used to awaken great passion in our hearts become mundane, sometimes we even start to develop kind of an antipathy towards them, we can lose the passion and the drive that once really propelled us forward. What if that starts to happen? To those of us who consider ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, as we think about and talk about Jesus, specifically, as we think and talk about God's grace, what if we cease to be in awe of what that grace means for us? We talk a lot about grace at Trailhead. We talk about it a lot because we're convinced it is the absolute bedrock foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We, we are convinced that it is the lifeblood of the good news of Jesus. It's the through-line theme of the entire Bible. It's everything. And so grace comes up a lot. We believe that it's grace that everything else hangs on. And so we use the word a lot. We talk about it. We, we, we try to look at it. But what if in all of our conversations about God's grace, in all of our talking about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, what if it starts to become something that we're just so familiar with that it's something we just drive right past and we don't even notice it anymore? What if it becomes so second nature to us that the good news of what Jesus did for us becomes boring? That the excitement and the passion that we may have felt the first time or the first 500 times we heard about what Jesus did for us. What if that excitement starts to go away? What if we can even become almost hostile towards it? What if we get to the place where Oh man, we're talking about grace again? Okay, the gospel, yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. Let's move on to something else. Okay, I've got, I've got all these things going on in my life and all these problems and all these pressures and all these issues. I've got places to go. And so why are we slowing down? Why do we keep talking about grace? Let's roll up the windows and let's just move to where we need to be. Tell me how to live. Tell me how to manage things. Tell me how to handle my relationships. Tell me how to do all the stuff I need to do. And the idea of God's grace has lost all of the excitement and all of the energy and all of the affection it used to bring up in our hearts. And I believe if we ever get to that place, That's a dangerous place for those of us who are believers to be. So today, my goal this morning is to go through this passage in Ephesians and to slow down. To maybe, if you'll pardon the metaphor getting too strained, to park the car 
and to actually take the time to stare at this passage and look at God's grace and remember why it's so exciting. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I hope that as we do this, as we look at this, as we go through this together, that maybe you'll see something you've never seen before. Maybe you'll hear this for the first time today, that you'll see the awesomeness of the good news of Jesus, and that you'll start to feel this excitement, this awe, this deep affection for what Jesus has done for you and the offer he gives to you. I think it'll help as we go through this if we make clear exactly what we're talking about when we say the word grace. Because grace is a word that, again, it has kind of a church meaning, but it also has kind of a broader meaning, and those can get kind of muddled sometimes, right? So we use that word so much. What exactly do we mean? So let me define it. Um, First of all, what it doesn't, it does not mean when we talk about grace, I mean, these are all definitions of grace, but it's not what we're talking about this morning, okay? I'm not talking about um, simple elegance or refinement of movement, like a graceful dancer. That's great. That's not what we mean. I'm not talking about courteous goodwill, like somebody being a graceful host. I'm not talking about an extended time to repay a loan, like a grace period. Or I'm not talking about like a short prayer, like let's say grace before we eat. Those are all true definitions of the word. They're not wrong, um, but none of them are really anything to get excited about. Maybe the one where you can delay your repayment of the loan, but, but in a different way. I'm talking about the grace that, that we're talking about that is the foundation that actually gets us fired up. The big idea of grace that has meaning for us as believers is the grace of God, his free and unmerited gift toward us in rescuing us and giving us blessings even though we don't deserve it. Let me say that again, because this is we have to keep this clear in our heads. When we see the word grace in here, when we talk about God's grace this morning, God's grace is his free and unmerited gift toward us in rescuing us and giving us blessings even though we don't deserve it. In fact, I would almost even amend that definition to say he gives us blessings because we don't deserve them. So I want to unpack that a little bit, okay? So I'm going to go through this passage together in Ephesians, and as we do that, I want to give you three truths. Three truths about God's grace that are worth getting excited about. For some of us, they're worth getting excited about again. So let's remember these three truths together. And first, I want to show you as we look at this that God's grace is absolutely necessary. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead. Can I pause? I think this is really important to start with. Paul, the apostle here, is talking to believers. He's talking to people who have experienced God's grace, who have been transformed by it, and he starts by referring to the experience of what it was like prior to these people knowing Jesus. And the description he gives is not that they were sick, and it's not that they were broken. It's that they and we were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We have to understand how absolutely 
hopeless our situation was and is without God's grace. Sick people can get better. Broken things can get fixed. Dead is dead. Dead means finished. Dead means there's no, there's no fixing dead. There's no getting better with dead. Nobody says, listen, I have a friend, they just passed away, would you pray for them that they could get better? Right? When it's dead, it's dead. When someone's, when we are, and so Paul is saying, we were dead. We had nothing within us that had the ability to improve. We were absolutely, because of our sin, absolutely finished. The problem that we have is not that we need to improve ourselves and make ourselves better. The problem we have is that on the inside we are dead. And, and, as he goes on, verses 2 and 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Here's what he's saying. Look, we're dead because of our sins, and we're dead by choice. We wanted to be that dead. All of our sin, all of our sickness, all of our rebellion, all of our pushing away from God was what we want. It is what we are naturally, he says, by nature. It's what our natural inclination, our natural desires lead us towards. We are not, Paul is trying to make this really clear here. We are not by nature good people who have just gone a little bit astray. We're not all, you know, basically foundationally at the bottom of it all. You know, we're basically good. We've just messed up. And if we could just get things right, if we could just get things back on track, then maybe everything will be okay. Paul says, no, no, you chose and you choose and you want to choose to do wrong, to rebel against the God who created you. Every inclination of your heart is in that direction and it has led you to a place where you are spiritually dead on the inside. We want to be doing the things that have killed us spiritually. And even, look, we talk about this frequently. But it's really clear in this passage. I mean, he makes this really, really clear here. The problems that plague us are not chiefly out there. They're in here. They're inside of us. It's our desires. It's the passions of our flesh. Even when he says we were following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, he says, yeah, there are negative forces, there are negative influences. Yes, there are. And we follow them gladly. We follow them willingly. We want to follow the negative influences. The problem is not that there's bad stuff making me do bad things. The problem is that I have within me a bad heart that wants to seek out and follow any negative influences or temptations. What does that all mean for us? It means that on our own, 
We are totally powerless to fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves better because we're not just sick. We can't improve ourselves morally because improving ourselves morally won't bring us back to life. A more moral dead person is still dead. We are in an unfixable situation. And we have no power to fix it ourselves. And yet, and yet, what we do most of our lives, we really spend most of our lives trying to fix the unfixable. We try to create significance for ourselves. We try to find joy. We try to give ourselves comfort, relief. We try to control our, our, our lives and our worlds. We try to make things better, but we don't need to be better. We need to be brought back to life. What we need is a resurrection. But we can't make that happen on our own. We need an external rescue. Internally, we are dead, so we need someone or something to save us. So watch what God does next. This is the next, the second thing that I want you to see about grace from this passage. That God's grace is totally and completely undeserved. Start in verse 4. But God, we're dead. We cannot save ourselves. We're dead because we want to be dead. There's nothing in us that's good enough to save ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God looks at us in our powerless brokenness, our sickness, our death. He sees our utter and complete inability to save ourselves. He sees the futility of all of our efforts to make ourselves better. And his feeling toward us is love. His feeling toward us in that desperate situation that we've chosen to push away from him, that we've chosen to run from him, that we've chosen to rebel against everything he says is good and is right. He looks at us in that situation and he responds with mercy. He doesn't look at us and say, well, there you are. You get what you deserve. He doesn't look at us and say, you know what? Maybe if you try a little harder, you can make this work. He looks at us and he loves us. And he loves us so much that he sacrificed his own son to rescue us. To pull us out, to do the thing we could not do on our own. 
And he does it, again, he does it because he loves us. We don't, Paul is so super clear in this passage, we do not earn God's love. We are, he uses the phrase, children of wrath by our nature. But because of his love, he rescues us from that. Look, this makes no sense to the way we normally think. Right? This is, God's grace is completely and totally counterintuitive to our cultural mindset. We, we believe and we teach and we teach our kids and we, this is this everything. This is what we grow up in. This is how we live. This is how everything works in society. It's how it works in your workplace. It's how it works in politics. It, it, that everything you get, you need to earn. And that you should get what you deserve. And if you want rewards, then you should work for them. And if you want more, then you should work harder. And if you have problems, it's probably because you're not trying hard enough or you don't have the right method or the right strategy, you need to work harder, you need to work smarter, but you need to earn it. And we even make up unbiblical uh, what we think and sometimes people believe our scriptures like God helps those who help themselves because that's our mindset. You have to earn it, you have to work for it, you need to deserve it. And our cultural mindset is so set toward earning and deserving. We feel when we, res- when we receive something we don't deserve, most of the time our response to that, we feel on the inside shame. We don't want anybody to know that we've received something that we didn't work for. Our automatic response when somebody gives us something is, okay, what can I give them in return? How can I pay them back? And we keep track in our mind, you know, we've got this ledger in our mind of what we owe. Based, and, and it's, look, and it comes out in how we give to other people as well, right? Our generosity, there's always in the back of my mind, like, I gave them that, but what am I going to get back, right? Because when, when you've given somebody something for Christmas or for their birthday, and then your birthday comes around, or for Christmas, and they don't give you something back, there's this thing inside of you, right? Like, how dare they? I was so generous and so giving to them. And they just completely... Why? Because we've got this mindset that you get what you deserve. And that if you give, you should get something back, and you really shouldn't get unless you've earned it. But look how adamant Paul is in this passage about our lack of earning or deserving God's grace. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you didn't earn it. This is not your own doing. It's so explicit. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And he says it again, not a result of works, so that no one may boast This is all from God. Like, this is so absolutely... He's like, how can I make this more explicit? You cannot earn God's favor. And yet, He loves you. And yet, He gives Jesus for you. And yet, He rescues you. He raises you up. Verse 6, 
up with Him and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This isn't just, Paul's saying, look, this isn't just like that you don't get punished. This is like you get additional gifts on top of. You get exalted to the highest place. This, um, <clears throat> there's this story, I, I want to sh- share a story with you, um, because it, it, it's totally fictional, just so I want to make that clear, um, but it's, I read this years ago, it's been so long ago, I can't even remember who wrote it or where I first read it, but it's such, to me, it was such a helpful picture of what God's grace looks like, in terms that I think maybe we can kind of grasp a hold of, and so, um, Imagine this with me, if you will, okay? Imagine, imagine you're like 12 years old, okay? For some of you, that's looking back. For some of you, that may be looking forward. But imagine you're about 12 years old, okay? And little 12-year-old you, it's a Saturday morning, and your parents um, are not home. I don't know why they've left you home alone at 12 years old, but you're, maybe they think you're responsible. Whatever, so you're home alone, okay? 12 years old, and you're bored, Right? And you're just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you're like, you know what? I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to learn to drive. And it's a beautiful day outside, so it seems like a good day. So you go out to the garage, okay? And you find, well, first you go in the kitchen, you find the keys, and you, in the garage, there's this old, your family owns this old Chevy Astro van, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Those big, right? So it's this big, you know, it's like a, <clears throat> It's a beast, right? And so you're like, I'm, I'm, today's the day. I think I can figure this out. Cause I've sat in the back seat and I've seen my dad do this before. I think I can, I think I can work this out. So you get in the van and, um, you, you at least know how the garage door opener works. So you're there. The, the garage is open. You get in, you kind of fumble around. You find the right key. You start it up, you know, and it's like, because it's, you know, it's not the newest vehicle ever, but you get it and you're like looking and there's two pedals and you're like, one of them is going to do something good and one of them is going to do something else. And I don't know what, but all right, I know what that means. And so you put it in reverse and you start backing out. Now, just as you're doing this, your next door neighbor is out in his driveway and he is, because again, it's a beautiful Saturday morning. And so he's got out his perfect fully restored 1965 Porsche 911 that he has, he bought it at an auction years ago and he spent years and years restoring this thing. It's absolutely perfect. It's so beautiful. And he's just taken it out for a little drive, but now he's washed it all down. And he's just, he's just finishing up this final coat of wax on this thing so that he can just kind of enjoy this beautiful day. And he steps back and he looks at this beautiful car that he's worked so hard to get into such pristine condition. And all of a sudden, he hears this noise and he looks up and there's this Chevy Astro van careening across the yard and you're on the inside with the steering wheel and like there and you're pushing both pedals back and forth and it's jerking back and forth and and bam and the Astro slams into the Porsche and the Porsche just crumples like paper and you slam forward and the the, the van stops and for a split second everything is silent now here's my question. What happens next? Now this could go down a couple ways. Most realistically, 
your neighbor runs over to the van, yanks the door open, starts screaming, what have you done? That was my car. I've spent years on that car. This is, you, I've spent so much money on that car. This is my, ah, this is my pride and joy. And you've destroyed it. And so he yanks you out of the van. He calls your parents. He says, you gotta get home. There's a mess. And then he calls the police because he's like, this is, this is big. Okay? And you have gone beyond the pale. You deserve punishment. And I deserve to be paid back. And so he calls the police and he calls your parents and he, and the police come and there's implications and there's consequences for you. There's consequences for your parents. And there's, uh, we have to set up a plan and we're going to pay back the car. And all of that would be absolutely fair and absolutely just and absolutely deserved. Because you did something really horrible. You destroyed something that was beautiful and perfect. You should have to pay. But what if? What if instead of that, your neighbor runs over, he throws open the door of the van, he's about to start screaming, and he looks at you, and you're crying, there's tears streaming down your face. And there's a little cut on your head, and so you're starting to bleed, and the blood and the tears are just there, and he sees you, and he just feels, and he wants to scream, and he wants to yell, but you're just a 12-year-old kid. And yes, it was a really, really, really bad decision, but he kind of feels sorry for you. So he gets you down out of the van, and he sets you in the grass, and he calls your parents, and as they come over, he says, look, I am mad, the car is destroyed, but I see you're hurt, I know it was an accident, partly an accident, so I'm just going to walk away, and I'm just going to let it go. I'm not... I'm not going to call the police. I'm not even going to ask you to pay it back as much as it, ooh, it's going to cost me, but I'm just going to let it go. And you would say, wow, that would be an incredible act of mercy. And almost no one would do that. Almost no one would just walk away and let it go with something like that. But what if there was a third option? And what if the neighbor runs over and he throws open the door to the van and he sees you there and the blood and the tears and... And instead of yelling, he reaches in and he gently lifts you out. And he carries you over to the porch. And he goes inside his house and he gets his own first aid kit and he comes out and he cleans up the cut. And he makes a call, but he does, he calls your parents, but he doesn't call the police. He calls uh, the ambulance to come just to check you out and just to make sure you're okay. And then he looks at you and he says, this is a mess. You destroyed my car. And as a consequence, I'm going to teach you to drive. Because you clearly have no idea what you're doing. And so he pays himself to have the Porsche 911 restored again. And then he starts taking you out in the Porsche every weekend. And for a while, he's just driving and showing you how it works. But then as time goes on, he starts letting you sit in the driver's seat. And he's giving you advice. And he's showing you how it all works. And he's teaching you. And then finally, when the day comes and you're 16 and you go and you come back and you show him that you've gotten your driver's license. And he says, that's great. And he hands you the keys and he says, the Porsche is yours. And you're like, why? And he says, well, because remember that day you wrecked it? Yeah? Well, I'm giving it to you. What? 
And you would say, this makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm telling this story and you're all saying, that would never ever happen in a million years. No one would ever do that. And you're absolutely right. No human being would ever respond to something they love being destroyed by trying to give the greatest blessing they could think of to the person who destroyed it. But that is exactly the story of Scripture. That God created a perfect world. Absolutely perfect. And we came in as human beings and we destroyed it. We wrecked it. With our sin, with our rebellion, willingly by our nature, we destroyed the world God created. And justice, justice means that we deserve God's wrath for our destruction of His creation. But God, in His mercy and His grace, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He doesn't just forgive what we've done, but He gives us His goodness and His blessings on top of it. And it makes absolutely no sense to us. And it leads us to the third truth about God's grace, which is this. God's grace is transformative. Look at verse number 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a really, really important distinction I want you to see between verses 9 and verse 10. Verse 9 and verse 10. Okay, it's a little word. It's, it's a single word. In fact, it's, it's two words with one letter difference that makes a huge impact on all of this and what it means for us. What this grace means for our lives as believers. And I think the confusion that starts to set in a lot of times that makes us lose our appreciation for God's grace. Here it is. In verse number 9, it says, God's grace is not a result of works. Verse 10, it says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The of versus the for is hugely important. And we need to catch this. God's blessings, God's grace, completely undeserved, not a result of my works. It's not a result of what I do. If God's blessings were a result of my works, I would constantly have to be earning them. I'd be working nonstop to earn his goodness and to pay him back because the blessings he has given me so far exceed anything I've ever done or ever could do. I would just be in a constant state, never being able to be good enough. Partly, and you know this, Every time I think I'm doing pretty well and maybe I'm getting caught up, I do something that just knocks it all back down and I just go way back into the red. There's no way that I can ever keep up with God's grace. But that's okay because grace is not a result of my works. But what it does is it results in good works coming from me. And here's why. When I fully grasp the significance of what Jesus did for me. When that love that he has shown me becomes real in my heart, then I see the world 
in a completely different way. That my view on everything is changed. If we allow God's grace as it truly is to penetrate our hearts, it will transform us into moving out in the same spirit of love as our primary motivation. If I have been loved this undeservedly and this extravagantly, then that love is going to impact how I interact with the world around me. It's going to change how I interact with other people, with my family, with my coworkers, with my neighbors, with the people who disagree with me, with the people who really annoy me. If I am so unconditionally love, then God's grace is going to mark me in a way that I'm going to have to ask, how can I start putting conditions on my love towards others? How can I be withholding good things from other people? If God has been so extravagant towards me, if I have access to all of his blessings and all of his goodness, then why am I fighting so hard to hold on to whatever I have? I am completely and totally free because of God's grace to be generous in my love towards others. Now look, am I saying that this is an easy thing? When I say God's grace is transformative, do I mean it's a switch that flips? And all of a sudden, when you believe in God's grace that you are just like a perfect human being? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because we forget. We forget what God has done for us. Look, Pico, this isn't the passage we're looking at, but Paul goes on in verse 11. In Ephesians 2, and he says, therefore, remember that at one time. And then again in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time. Paul is talking about this, and he keeps having to say, remember this, remember this, remember this. There's a reason that so much of what's in the New Testament is a repetition of God's goodness and God's grace in the gospel. It's because we forget. It's because... It becomes so normal to us. And as we forget the goodness of God's grace, we start to lose its power in our lives. This is why we cannot, we cannot, we absolutely cannot let grace become just a a buzzword. Or worse, an annoyance. It's everything. It's everything to us as believers. It shapes everything. It has an impact on everything. It has implications for everything. Everything. The gospel fills in every aspect of our lives. If it's true, there's no limit to what it will influence in our lives. We have been given... An amazing, incredible gift. We cannot forget that. We cannot let it become scenery that we just drive past. We need to remind ourselves, God in His grace sacrificed Himself because we could not save ourselves. He came down and saved us. 
Let's remember. Let's pray together. In a moment, we're going to share communion together. Communion is a time when we remember together the goodness of God's sacrifice for us. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, God, you're so good to us. God, your grace to us is so amazing. It's so undeserved. How can we ever lose the awe the passion for what you've done for us, and yet we do. God, please reignite our hearts to see your goodness, to feel your mercy, and to be in awe of your grace. Transform us, not externally, not just what we do. God, transform our hearts. Fill us with your love. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.